And that's special because then each one of us, we don't need our own revelation from you. We can go to the pages and see how you have worked in the lives of your saints in the past and know who you are, how you have worked, how we should live, to look forward to the hope that we have in Christ and that he is returning soon. And that gives us hope and comfort for the church of this day, knowing what its mandate is, how it is to function, and our calling in that. So we ask, Father, this morning that you can speak through us so that when we leave this place, our lives can be changed by the worship that we have had here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please open it up to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. February 1st, 2003 will be a day that my family will never forget. My daughters were five and a half and three and a half, and it was a Saturday in which I was getting ready to preach the next day, and it was a day of shopping for me to get ready to go on a trip to China to pick up my son. And so 10 days later, I was to pick him up, and so there was much to do. And so the morning after the shopping, I went downstairs into the basement, that's where my desk was, and prepared to work on my sermon. And after a couple of hours, I was feeling a little off. I was feeling weirdly tired. My daughter had earlier fallen asleep in our room, which was not normal, and I kept on studying. It was beginning to be dusk now, and I was having a hard time focusing on pulling my thoughts together. And so I decided to sort of clear my head and make a trip to Home Depot. And so I had um, something I'd been wanting to purchase for a while. It was a carbon monoxide detector. And so we had not owned one, and I felt that we should have one before my son came home. And so I wanted to clear my head, and I went out to to get the carbon monoxide detector. So while I was gone, my wife was getting my children ready for their evening bath so they can get ready for church the next day. And by the time the tub was full, she was realizing she was too weak to carry out the bathing of the daughters. And so she began to feel sick to her stomach. And by the time I got home, she informed me that none of them were feeling quite well. And so I decided to plug in the carbon monoxide detector, and immediately it, it read over 600 in the high sixes. Looking at the manual, I did not know if that was a good reading or a bad reading. I had no idea. And so I, I reset the device, and the alarm went off again, saying in the high sixes. And so I took the device outside, thinking maybe it still had some of the gases in which it was put together still inside and it just needed to get cleared out. So I cleared it out, plugged it back in, the alarm went off once again. Still unsure, I went next door to our neighbor's place and we were living in a duplex, so they were real close by, and I asked them if I could plug my unit into their unit just to see what number I would get. Well, their number read um, over 100. So I thought, all right, I had over... Close to seven, they had over 100. Now what? The only thing that I thought about was to call 911. So I placed a phone call. Hi, I just bought a carbon monoxide detector, and it's reading in the high 600s. Is that bad? The voice responded by saying, get out of the house immediately. And within a minute, there were police cars and fire trucks sort of surrounding our house, and they were um, taking uh, my family to Manchester Hospital by ambulance. And so when we got there, we were placed on oxygen, and they began to take a number of different blood tests. And during this time, I kept on thinking, I need to go home and study, because I have to teach the next day. And so I called the church and began to inform them, I don't think I'll be able to preach, because this looks like I'm going to be here for a while. And after a few hours, we found out they were trying to find an empty uh, parabolic chamber for us to, to go to to be treated for the carbon monoxide. And so at the time, they were planning to separate our daughters from, from ourselves, but we told them that that was not acceptable. And so they finally found a hyperbaric chamber um, just outside of Springfield, 
And so we got into another ambulance and went off. We arrived there at 2 o'clock in, in the morning, and then uh, we spent the next couple of hours watching Lion King um, in the hyperbaric chamber. We finally got home at 5.30 in the morning after a full night with no sleep of being awake. The cause, we found out from the fire department, was a squirrel had fallen into the chimney and had blocked the chimney, thus letting in the carbon monoxide into the house. And so we realized, Michelle and I, that that day God's hand was directly on our family. He spared my daughters, he spared myself and my wife, and then I was able to pick, pick up my son and bring him home, and then two years later adopt our other son. God was with my family. But yet February 1st, 2003, is also known for another day that I have to mention. Because it was the same day the space shuttle Columbia was destroyed upon re-entry, in which all seven astronauts were killed. These are tragic events. Their deaths moved the nation. And the question came into my and my wife's heads, why did we live and they die? Same day. And I actually don't have an answer for that. But we did not die that day. Interesting story, interesting question. But looking back at things, I can truly see God's providence was in it. And you may be saying, well, God's providence was in that because he kept you alive. And you would be correct. God's providence was in action. But also at the same time, if my entire family died that day, that still would be God's providence. God's providence doesn't change. And if you're confused with that, you do not fully understand the providence of God. Because many times people look at the providence of God as a Christian word for luck. You're driving a car, big semi sort of jumps in your way, and you just narrowly miss it. One can say, that was providential. God spared you from getting smashed by that big truck. It would be true. Or a giant branch just sort of misses the house and just falls on the yard. You may say that was prov providential, and you would be true. But God's providence does affect the horrible um, events that happens in our life because those events are still providential. It is still the providence of God at work. And as we have seen in the book of Genesis, and as we begin to look at the opening verses of the book of Exodus, we have been seeing God's providential work in the life of his people. We've seen it in Jacob. We've seen it in Joseph. And all the time, God's providence was there. And so as we begin to put our final thoughts on the book of Genesis, I want to look at this morning with the time that we have um, trying to get a fuller understanding of the providence of God so you can have a greater appreciation and a greater understanding of God working in your life whether or not it's difficult times or the good times because they will be there the hard times the times in which we have no answers and so to begin to put our thoughts on I'm very much in, indebted to Bodie Botham and to Steve Lawson because I wasn't sure where I wanted to go. But as I began to sort of um, um, pull my thoughts together, there are three things about, about God that we have to have an understanding to fully appreciate God's providence. There are three at attributes that form a cord that cannot be broken. And so that cord that is formed is the providence of, of God. And so the first attribute that you have to have an understanding to fully appreciate the providence of God is the sovereignty of God. You have to have an understanding that God is in control. God is in control of everything. And to the extent that you believe that depends on your reliance and rest that you'll get in the providence of God. Because either God is in control of everything, which makes him God, or he is not. And, and so that begins to ask the question, how much 
is God in control? What is that extent? Is he in control most of the time, 60% of the time, 40%? No, he has to be because he's God. He knows everything. And so God is at work in every event in human history. Either he sent those events in or he allowed it to be. So when you put on the evening news and you see everything going on in Israel, things are not a surprise with God. God knows those things. He has a plan. He has a plan A. There is no plan B. And so though he allows tragic events to happen, he could have prevented those things if he wanted to because they're all part of his divine decree that is being played out. And so God didn't didn't just create the world to let it go on on its own and, and, and to see what will happen. He knows every event. He knows everything that takes place. He's not idly watching things just to see how they will turn out. Because if that was true, he would not be sovereign. There's a great verse found in Isaiah 66 in verses 9 and 10. And it says this, remember the former things long past. For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God is sovereign. He is in control. There is no such thing as accidents. There is no bad luck. There's no such thing as bad karma. There's no such thing as random chance. There's no such thing as random occurrences. Things don't come in pairs of, well, pairs of three. Things, bad things don't happen in threes. Bad things happen because there will, there will be that as many as there will be. And so the Bible states clearly in a lot of other places that God is in completely in control of everything. So when you begin to think about sovereignty, it speaks about God's rule, his authority. And when you begin to couple providence to that, it is how he exercises that rule. Providence is God's rule in daily action. He's sovereign. How does he do that? He does that through his working, and that is his providence. God is providentially at work. But yet there's a second attribute that you must comprehend to understand the providence of God, and that is the wisdom of God. Not only is God sovereign, is he in control, but you better hope that he, that he knows what he's doing. And God is a God of wisdom. He is a God who is all wise. He's ruling in human history, but that rule, it's perfect. It's a perfect wisdom that he has. So when he makes a decision, it's a perfect decision there is no error and so if he wasn't if he wasn't all wise if he didn't have this wisdom he could have had errors in his judgment and make the wrong decisions but because he is all wise he makes the proper decisions and the perfect decisions that means that god has chosen the best paths and the best means to accomplish whatever he has determined Great verses, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, where he says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As for the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We tend to look at things through how we would do things. God says, eh, you don't know everything. My ways are so much greater than what your ways and your thoughts could ever be. In Romans chapter 11, verse 33, we find, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. So God is sovereign. God is wise. And yet there's a third attribute that you need to comprehend to understand God's providence, and that is the goodness of God. God has to be in control. He has to be all wise. But yet in his decisions, he needs to be good in what he does. Implied within God's goodness means 
it's also implied that he loves his people, that he's compassionate, that he's gracious. And so we have to be reminded that God brings about or permits events and trials into our life and that when those things happen, that they are good. So we may not fully understand the why things happen, but we do know that God is good. Let's look at some verses. In Psalm 103, I like, I like these verses. Beginning in verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. You don't have to flounder about when things happen in your life thinking, why are these things all bad? Somehow God is working those things out. And so we can bless the Lord with our full soul. In Psalm 84 and verse 11, we find, For the Lord God is the sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold to those who walk uprightly. So if you're a child of God, if you have placed your faith in, in, in Christ, God is good. He is there. And we can trust him for that. And yet, Psalm 34, verse 8, makes it so simple. It says, oh, taste and see the Lord, that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And one more verse, one, one that you probably have mem memorized, Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This really summarizes the providence of God. It says, and we know. It doesn't say, and uh, we don't always know the feelings behind those things, but we know that God is at work. God is the cause. God is the source of all things. It means that he is sovereign. He is actively in, in, involved. He's not sitting on the sidelines. And what does he do? He causes all things. Not just the good things, but even the bad things. It's all things. To those who are good, who love God, all, to those who are called according to his purpose. So we need to have those three aspects in mind when we begin to get a deeper understanding of the providence of God. So we are reminded that God is sovereign. He's completely in control. We need to be reminded that God is all wise. He has a perfect plan that he's bringing out. That plan has been there from before the foundation of the world. And all his choices of the past that he has for us are designed with perfect wisdom because he is all wise. And then these things that happen, we are reminded that God is good. They're, they're, just, not, uh, uh, they're just not difficult circumstances with no reason. There is a reason, but we may not know the reason now. We may not fully know the reason in this lifetime. But we can cling to the hope and, and glean, comfort in, glean comfort and peace by realizing that it will bring God glory and it is for our good, that there is a reason. So once we begin to have a handle on those three, we can truly find rest and peace in the doctrine of providence. And when things begin to go out of control, we can have that peace that we're searching for. That God is there. He is sovereign. He is wise. But yet he is good. And so the last time we've been looking at Genesis chapter 50, and we've been looking at uh, Joseph's life since chapter 37. And we've been saying all, all this time since the beginning that the story of Joseph isn't just a story about Joseph. It is God providentially working in the lives of his people to bring about not just a nation, but to bring about a savior through them because he had made certain promises in the past. And so he's, going to, he's been using Joseph to accomplish thus, um, just that. And the last time that we saw, we saw that Jacob 
had died, and his brothers were fearing that Joseph would retaliate from all the evil that they caused him because their father had passed and they had a guilty conscience because they had never asked for forgiveness from Joseph. And look at verse 18, just to, just to look at these verses, and then we're going to be looking at a, a part of verse 20. And it says, And then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant, it, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph, as we said, has had perfect peace from all the evil treatment from his past because of two things. He had forgiven his brothers and his and his grasp on the providence of God, which had taken place. God has used all of the evil that Joseph has experienced, and he had peace with that, because God had planned it all the entire time. And so when you begin to get a working knowledge of God's providence in Joseph's life, we can see that God was teaching him to trust in him, that he was in control, that he was good, that he was all wise, because he was teaching his providence to the situation at the pit. He was teaching his providence of being sold into slavery, to the exaltation at Potiphar's house, through the accusation of rape made by Potiphar's wife, which led him to be thrown into prison and to be forgotten about. He trusted in God's uh, providence through the interpretation of the cupbearer and baker's dreams. And then through the years of silence, he would be called upon again to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And so throughout Joseph's trials, he did not know or have any clue on the why it was happening. All he knew that God was with him and his faith and trust was with him through those hard situ situations. And so to get a better appreciation of the providence of God, not only what we have seen so far, I want you to look at the beginning verses of Exodus chapter 1. Just over on the next side of the page. And the question may come into your mind, oh, are we going to study the book of Genesis? Uh, no, no, I just, I just want to look at the opening verses. That would be a good thing to do, but we shall see. And so Exodus chapter 1 is actually the bridge between the entire book of Genesis and what follows in the book of Exodus. Most people think that when the book of Exodus opens, they think of the movie. They think of the little baby Charleston Heston floating down the river and, and being found, and that's where the story opens. But that's not where the book of Exodus opens at. It opens basically where the book of Genesis stops. And this would make complete sense because the same author wrote Exodus who wrote the book of Genesis, and that was Moses. And Moses is telling a story. This happens to end in Genesis, but he's continuing the story in the book of Exodus. It's directly connected one to the other. The book is actually composed with the same pattern. And so it starts off, the book of Exodus, with a small group of people. And so let me read for you the first seven verses. And through these seven verses, we get to see the providence of God had been at work the entire time through the lives of his people. Verse 1 of Exodus 1. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came, each one with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Ishakar, Zebulun, Benjamin. Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher. All the peoples who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number. But Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. And then in verse 7, but the sons of, e uh, of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied. 
and became exceedingly mighty, so that, or resulting in, the land was filled with them. And so Moses is linking the story of God choosing a people and is continuing that story. And so when you begin to start reading the book of Exodus, you have to understand what God has already done in the book of Genesis or you would miss the entire point of how the book of Exodus unfolds. Because if you just start reading the book of Exodus, you'll be, you'll be thinking that 400 years have gone by, God hasn't worked, God has forgotten them, what, what good is their God if they place their faith in them? But that's not at all what has taken place. Because when you start with these opening verses, you immediately understand and see the providence of God is at work. And so how do we see the providence of God here? Well, let me, I'm going to bring up three aspects this morning that begins to show the providence of God. First, the, the first aspect comes in the first five verses. We see, first of all, the providence of God's preserving his people. God, God's providence is, is in how he has preserved his people. And there are five ways on how he preserves his people, which is amazing. And this is all the providence of God. First of all, God kept his people distinct in a foreign land. In the Old Testament, we see many different people groups that, that are mentioned. We see the Amorites and the Moabites and the Hittites, but have you ever met one? Have you ever met a Hittite? Have you ever met and talked to a Moabite or Amorite? Or how about a Philistine? You may met someone who acted like a Philistine, but they, they weren't a Philistine. Maybe, maybe you've seen a termite, which is not a good thing. But out of all the different ites in the Old Testament, those people groups are gone. Nobody identifies with them. In fact, you probably never heard of a people group who actually went into another land, went into another culture, and was not completely assimilated and absorbed in that culture. Yet God, while his people were in Egypt, in a foreign land, kept his people a distinct people. They were not absorbed into the Egyptian culture. Now, for that to take place, there's only a few ways in which that could happen. You could be conquered by a, a nation and they're in control, but you still are living in that one land. But they're in a foreign land. And so the, the, um, the main other way on how a people can maintain their distinct culture is that if they were conquered by another land and they were made slaves, they were made a slave class, separate from everyone else because they were slaves. They were looked down upon. Then they couldn't intermarry. They, they couldn't be assimilated into that culture because they were slaves. And that's exactly what we have here. Remember back in Genesis chapter 43 and verse 32, it had this interesting comment which sort of led the foundation for the turmoil that Israel would have in Egypt. It said, so they served him by himself. Uh, Joseph was with his brothers. He just uh, was re, um, well, with his brothers and he serves them dinner. So his brothers are with, um, are with Joseph and they serve by, the, by themselves. And it's interesting, this next part. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. So Joseph and his brothers, but the Egyptians were not eating with them. Why? Because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews. Oh, there's a dis distinction. For that is lonesome to the Egyptians. They did not like people who had livestock and smelled. They were different. They were from another culture. They weren't Egyptian. They wanted nothing to do with them. And so the foundation was laid for later on when Pharaoh would die off and a new, another Pharaoh would come into play that didn't know Joseph. They were ripe for slavery. And so that's what takes place. So during the next 400 years, 
their stay there turned into bondage. And so slavery is one way in which one culture was being kept from being absorbed into another culture. And that's precisely what we, what we find with God's people in Egypt. Secondly, there's, there's another aspect on how God preserves his people by keeping his people from premature death. God's providence was at work by keeping his people from a premature death. Because if you look at these verses here that we have in the opening part of Exodus, all of Jacob's sons are listed, all 12. You may think, well, that's not all that important. But to have all of Jacob's sons alive at this point in Jacob's life, when they enter the land, that's not normal. They lived in rough times, hard times, times in which there was illness and disease and famines and wars. They, were, they tended livestock. There were lions and wolves. And because they tended livestock, it sort of invited them to come. It, was not, it is very unusual to have a large family and to have them all be still alive late in life. It's not normal. Somebody would die at some, in some way. But God providentially was at work to preserve them. Why? Because they had to receive the blessings from Jacob to be part of the 12 tribes. So God providentially w- was at work. But thirdly, God was providentially at work by keeping his people from separation. These 12 sons of Jacob all went to Egypt together. They were not separated from one another. Famine was on its way, and the fear of starving was there, and they all left the promised land together. It's interesting because back in Genesis chapter 38, they weren't all together. They were actually separated. Look at the first two verses of Genesis 38. We find that it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers. Judah left. That's the beginning part of Joseph's story. He's gone from his, from his family. So much so, he married someone who wasn't, who wasn't a Hebrew, who somebody who he met there. And then in verse 2, he saw there was a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her, and he ends up marrying her. Normally, when you marry someone else, you settle down in in the culture and you begin to raise your own family. Judah was out of the picture. But somehow God brought him back to the family. He brought him back and God kept his people from separation. So when the uh, famine began to kick in, all 12 sons could enter Egypt together. God was providentially at work. But yet there's a fourth element on how God preserved his people, God kept his people from starvation. So when you begin to look at life, why did God send Joseph to Egypt? God sent him to Egypt because there was an extremely severe famine that was coming. And the promised bloodline, the promised seed needed to be protected. They did not know which son would produce the promised line. All they knew that he was coming. Because you remember back in the promise that, that God made in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. When the first Adam fell, God cursed the serpent and says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's the promise. That's the first gospel. There will be one who will come. And God promises that there will be a Messiah coming. That there will be a deliverer coming. That there will be a savior coming. And so this is an announcement that there will be one who is coming who will be from the seed of the woman. And that seed will crush the head of the snake. So essentially the book of Genesis begins to unfold that seed line, that bloodline in which the promised one would come. In the next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, we see the first murder. The seed of the serpent, Cain, kills the seed of the woman, Abel. 
promise can't come. But at the end of chapter 4, there is an announcement of the birth of Seth. And Seth is in the line of that promised seed. In chapter 5, there are the ten generations from Adam to Noah. And we find out that that godly line of Seth is being preserved. The earth is then destroyed by a flood, and yet the promised seed is contained within the ark. Shem is identified as that promised seed. Eventually there's Terah, and then there's Abraham, in which God calls and tells him that, he, that there will be a great nation. There will be a blessing. They will have a land in which to dwell in. And this promised seed would come through him. And God promises his son. Who will it be? Is it Ishmael? He's not the promised seed. It's going to come through Isaac. Isaac has children. He has twins. There's Esau, the firstborn. Is he the promised seed? No, it's through Jacob. Jacob gets married to two different women. One woman he didn't love and the other one he did. He has 12 sons. Who is going to be the promised seed? Is it through the, first, the firstborn, Reuben? No. Is it through the one that he most loved? No. The promised seed comes through the wife whom he didn't even want to marry, and that is Judah. Judah would live on to have his, his sons, who would later ultimately bear, um, bear David and then ultimately live to bear Jesus. And so this promised seed needed to be protected. And so how does God protect the promised seed? He protects it through his providence by permitting the sins of his brother, sending Joseph into slavery, and then in his providence lets Potiphar's wife tempt Joseph, who, who he rejects, who gets thrown into prison. Not just into any prison, but into Pharaoh's prison. And then God prov providentially sends Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker to prison, in which each of them has dreams. And then God providentially works through Joseph, who can interpret dreams. And then God prov providentially has Joseph forgotten in prison for two years until Pharaoh has two dreams, in which no one could interpret. And God prov prov providentially works in which has Joseph come up and interprets his dreams, in which then he, he is made prime minister over all Egypt and helped prepare the country for seven years of famine. All the time in Joseph's life, God was at work. Joseph didn't know what the why, but God was at work. God was at work to protect Judah, who would bring about David, who would bring about Jesus, to be that promised seed from starving to death. That's the providence of God. But yet there's a fifth element that God preserves his people. And the fifth element is God kept his people despite their sinfulness. God preserves his people despite who they were. As you begin to read about Joseph's sons, outside of Joseph himself, you see that they were a dysfunctional, sinful group of people. They would be a group that you would tell your children, see those guys? Stay away from them. They're no good. You read uh, Jacob's stories and just the first sons, you, you find polygamy, deception, incest, mass murder, adultery, kidnapping, hatred, envy, and the list goes on. And so, they were not a nice group of people. Remember what Simeon and Levi did. They slaughtered in the middle of the night the Shechemites. One violated the sister, then wanted to marry her. So they said, the only way that you're going to marry her is to be circumcised. And when they were at the most weakest, they went in and killed them all. Mass murder. They were not a great group of people that you would be giving them medals. And so when you read the book of Genesis, you don't come away thinking that God is working in their lives because they are more faithful and righteous to him. That's far from the truth. God kept his people despite their lack 
of righteousness. God providentially was at work because he made a promise to Abraham. He retold it to Isaac. He retells it to Jacob. And so you may ask in the back of your mind, well, why didn't God just call a family who was righteous to be his people? You know the answer comes to that. There were none. When the only non-dysfunctional family were created, they, they defined dysfunction. And so there were no righteous people. Yet God kept his people despite their sin. So when you look at this one list of what you have, you don't walk away with that they deserved God's preservation. You walk away from the list that if it wasn't by God's grace, they deserved his wrath. But God made a promise, and he needed to keep it. Yet there's a second element that we have. The second element that we see God's providence in these verses is God's providence reunited his people. In God's providence, he, re, uh, he reunited his people together. And there are three areas that I want you to realize him reuniting his people. Go, um, go back to, uh, to verse 7 where it says, Joseph was already in Egypt, the, the end, end of verse 5. The last part of verse 5 says, Joseph was already in Egypt. So here we see God reunites Joseph and his family. Now that's a loaded statement. God, uh, Joseph is already in Egypt. God, bring, God is going to bring the, the whole family down and says Joseph was already in Egypt. That's a 23-year statement with all of the pain and all of the loneliness and all the hardship that Joseph had to go through. He was 17 when he went into slavery. And now at this point is 23 years later. He's now 40. During those 23 years, he probably thought he would never see his family again. He's probably actually thinking 23 years have gone by. He's out of the promised land where, in which God is dealing with the promises that he made to his people because he was outside of the promised land, that he was outside of, of, of understanding God's blessing. And so now his brothers come to him because of the famine. He begins to realize that all of this difficulty that he had to endure, that he was not outside of the promise. But actually all of the time, God sent him there to Egypt to slavery, to endure all of that, was to use him to preserve and to fulfill the promise. Completely different perspective. And now he fully understands, or we, um, we can fully understand how he can forgive his, brother, his, um, his brothers. He tells them, don't be angry for what you have done. It's because God was in it all the time. In Genesis chapter 45, we, we find this uh, being underscored. And he said, I am your brother Joseph. So he's revealing himself whom you sold into Egypt. Do not be grieved or angry with yourself because you sold me here. For God sent me here. You should underline that. It was God. Why did he do that? Before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there's still five years in which there will be neither plow or harvest. God sent me here to preserve you for a remnant in the earth, to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me, just in case they weren't getting it, but God. He has made me a, a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land. Of Egypt. We see there that God re reunites Joseph with his family, and it was because of his providence. But yet, there's a second element at God reuniting is that God kept Jacob alive to be re uh, united with Joseph again. At this point in Jacob's life, 
He's a very old, old, old man. He's about 137, as, as we said. And it, it's important that Joseph is al- Jacob is alive because there is blessing that is going to be coming to him. And if Jacob happened to die, Joseph wouldn't have received the blessing, which means there would be no portion of land that was to be designated to him, which got divided into his two sons. And so if, if he had died, there would be a no blessing. But God preserved him, kept him alive to be reunited. That's the providence of God. But yet there's a third element that we see God reuniting with his people is God kept Joseph's heart soft to, to him, to God, and his family. Throughout all that hardship, we have not one instance in which he got bitter and angry at God or his, or his brothers. So much so that he names his two sons in a positive aspect. Remember Manasseh? Manasseh uh, means making me forget. And so through the naming of Manasseh, he is saying that he has forgotten all of the sorrow, all of the hardship, and all of the pain that he went through. So every time he said Manasseh, it was a reminder. I have no more pain from all of that. And then with the second son, Ephraim, um, means literally means to be fruitful. It carries the idea to be abundantly fruitful. God has been with him to make him fruitful, abundant in what he has done. He has taken away all of the pain in the land that for 23 years, no one even knew the name of Yahweh. He couldn't talk about it. He couldn't commune with anybody, have fellowship. It was just him, all alone, him and his family. Yet they felt forsaken. And so... God was there keeping Joseph's heart soft to him, pliable to him and his family. His love for his family and God didn't erode. But yet as we begin to look at the verses back in Exodus 1, we see a third aspect of God's providence in expanding, in expanding his people. God expands his people as the book of Exodus begins to open. And here's the foundation that we need to take place over the past 400 years. So between the book of Genesis and the opening verses, verses here is 400 years. And it's interesting because look at verses 6 and 7 again. It says, Joseph died and his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful, increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. As you sort of read those verses, it should ring a little bit of, it sounds very familiar, because that's exactly how the book of Genesis begins. When God created man and, and, and woman in the opening chapters, he gave them a mandate. And the first command that he gave, gave them is found in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. It says, God blessed them, the man and the woman, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And now we have the beginning of Genesis, where it says, the sons of Israel, they were fruitful, increased greatly, multiplied, and became exceedingly mighty, so that the land was filled with them. It mirrors Genesis chapter 21. Why? Same author and he's trying to make the same point. God expands his people under this time of bondage while in Egypt. It shows the blessing of God and his providential working to fulfill his people. And so God is trying to fulfill the promises in which he had made. The promise is found in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. Let me just touch on this real quickly. It says, go forth. From your country, leave what you know. Go to some place where you, you have no clue. And from your, from your relatives in your father's house to a land which I will show you. And here it comes. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. 
and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And then you and all your families of the earth will be blessed. That's the promise. But there's a problem. By Genesis chapter 15, Abraham has an issue. Still no kids. And so, and so he's at 100 years old at this point. In Genesis chapter 15, God comes to talk to him once again. And God takes him in verse 5 outside and said, look towards the heavens. Count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. He has no kids. But he believed God in verse 6, believed in the Lord, and was reckoned to him as righteousness. And so Sarah still didn't have a child. And so the promised seed would, would come through Sarah, through Isaac. And in Isaac's birth was the promise of the multitude. And then uh, Isaac had twins, and it is through Jacob comes the promise of the multitude. But by Jacob, he has 12 sons. This is like uh, almost 200 years later, and there's a problem. They're growing at a snail's pace. Because as we find in the opening verses of Genesis, they number 70 in men. They're never going to be like the stars in the sky or the sand in the sea. But yet God repeats the same promise. You will be there. Look at Genesis chapter 35. He, he tells um, Jacob once again, your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall your name be. And he also called Israel and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful, multiply, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you. The company of nations is us. We'll speak about that in a moment. And the kings shall come forth from you. And so God is fulfilling a promise. God is expanding his people. They're growing. When they leave during the exodus, they are a great people. Maybe numbering as many as two and a half million people at this point. Still a far cry from the uh, numerous stars in the sky, but they're still a great people. God is fulfilling the promise that he has made. And yet, as he fulfills this, we are a part of, of that. I want you to look at Romans chapter 9 for, for a moment, because as he expands his people... We are a part of that because we are a part of, of God's people in which are grafted in. And in Romans chapter 9, we have this interesting set of verses which says, which begins to define who the descendants of Abraham are. Romans chapter 9, God makes a promise to the church in which he expands us into it. It says, but it is not as though God's word has failed. For, for they are not all Israel. Not everyone who is a descendant of Abraham is part of God's people. Abraham had, had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. The promise only comes through Isaac. And so not all Israel are descendant from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. And then in verse 8, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. And so not everyone who is a child of God, but you have to be, by faith, attached to Abraham. And then the chapter begins to unfold to where we are grafted in. We are a part of God's people not because we are a direct bloodline from Abraham, but we are adopted into the family and we are grafted in. And so God is preserving his people. He's expanding his people. It expands to us. So when you begin to look at the story of Genesis and God providential working and then how Exodus begins to unfold in God providential working, not just is it the story of God's people in which God is at work, but it's your story. 
God is providentially at work to bring you to faith to be part of his people. And the whole point of God's providential working that I'm trying to make is, if God is able to carry out the promises that he has had from before the foundation of the world, to choose a man, to have a man begin to have sons, and through the sons, the promised one would come, and that promised one would eventually, through the line of Judah, be the promised one, to be the king of kings, to be the Lord of lords. If he can do all of that providentially, he can work in your life, in your events, in your hardships, and we can have the comfort and the peace to know that when you don't know where to turn, you can turn to God and to trust him. Because he is sovereign, he is good, he is all wise. And so that is why we come to partake at the table this morning. It is a time for God's people those who have placed their faith in, in Christ to come to celebrate what God had done. Because it's a fulfillment of the promise that God has done. That there will be one who will be a savior. He will be a deliverer. He will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he came and he died. So we have a picture of the bread and we have a picture of the blood, I mean, uh, of, of the cup. One represents his body that was broken for us. And, and, the, and the cup represent the blood. But if you, have, if you have never placed your faith in Christ, if you do not know if you were to die today, maybe from carbon monoxide poisoning, and you had to stand before, before God, and God would say, why would I let you in? What would you tell him? Would you say, well, I went to church all my life. I gave money to the church. I got confirmed. I got baptized. If it's a list of deeds that you have done, you have a faulty faith. You have to see what Christ has done, see his perfect holy life, see that he was my substitute who died for me because when I look at my own life, how much I fall short, and there's nothing that I could do to improve my standing before God, and I deserve his wrath. Yet God provide a substitute to die in my place so his righteousness could be counted towards me and my sin was counted towards him. So if you then were to die today, you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt where you would be. It's not a hope, it's not a I hope, I hope. It's a certainty. And so we come to celebrate. So if you have never done that, this is not a time for you. You need to come to faith. You need to turn to Christ. And you need to cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He will forgive you. If you are struggling with fear of what is going on in the world, have faith, have comfort. Trust in him with whatever situation you are going through. If he could accomplish that big picture of redemption providentially, he can work in the details of your life. God gives you hope. So as the men come forward, let us bow our heads as we prepare our hearts. Father, we, we thank you that as we have seen through the life of Joseph, you have been at work the entire time. And I know in my own life, there were times, even most recently, where I questioned, what in the world am I doing? What is it all about? Why have I gone through what I have gone through? And the entire time, I came to the story of Joseph and to see from chapters 37 to the end that you are always providentially at work, even if you don't see it. 
thank you that we can put our trust in you. Thank you that we can celebrate that fact at the table because if it wasn't for Christ dying for us, we would still be lost in our sins. So thank you, Father. I pray this in Jesus' name.